the EU Commission can't negotiate a reasonable tax position with Eurozone jurisdictions with them, can't negotiate reasonable tax positions with Eurozone jurisdictions without them. And they're especially stringent in rooting out all tax arbitrage situations where they see multinationals getting undue benefit from jurisdictions and tax maneuvers that they say essentially boils down to state aid. Welcome, everyone, to the Fiona Show, Transfer Pricing, Cross-Border Solutions, Weekly Deep Dive Transfer Pricing Podcast. On today's show, we'll be taking a closer look at these cases Joined by Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and David Chamberlain, Assistant Professor of Accounting and Tax at Orphalia College of Business at California Polytechnic State University. We'll be mentioning tax maneuvers with fun names like the Irish Double Dutch, along with household brand names that have tried to take advantage of them, only to end up in litigation. But did you know you can end up with CPE credits just for listening to this podcast? Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of this show. Listen very, very closely and send all three to the Fiona show at xbs.ai and we will email you back with your certificates. Again, that email is the Fiona show at xbs.ai. Now let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. The pandemic has been one big reevaluation exercise from priorities to life goals to relationships. As for Ireland, it's reevaluating its tax treaty policy. Earlier this month, the Department of Finance opened the door to public consultation on the matter. So why are the Irish entertaining the idea of a complete policy overhaul? Simple. They recognize that changes and will continue to be on the tax horizon. Tax treaties are constantly widening in scope to include anti-abuse actions, which further solidifies the potential move to adapt to OECD recommendations. The consultation also considers how Ireland should conduct tax treaties with developing countries and if it should take a position on standard issues like source taxation. Public comments are accepted until May 7th. One multinational is sending the tax authority packing. Avery Dennison, a global manufacturer and distributor of packing materials, recently won its latest battle against the Chilean tax authorities. The case revolved around intercompany loan interest rates and distributor margins. The Chilean affiliate, Avery Dennison Chile, provided two loans to its Luxembourg affiliate, one in 2010 and another in 2011. The interest was priced at 0.79% the 12-month LIBOR rate for both years. The tax authorities argued the rate was too low as LIBOR reflects a risk-free rate. As for the distributor margin issue, the tax authority claimed that Avery Dennison Chile SA's intercompany price of goods should have been lower, according to the transactional net margin method. Meanwhile, Avery Dennison argued that its prices were appropriate using the resale price method. The tax authority also disagreed with several of the selected comparable companies. Ultimately, the tax court decided in favor of the taxpayer. While it's a celebratory win for Avery Dennison, the case is a clear reminder to taxpayers. Keep your friends close and your supporting documentation closer. Good things come to those who wait and those who pay taxes in India. India's Central Board of Direct Taxes announced amendments to its transfer pricing guidance. And trust us when we say that taxpayers will be happy. 
The new requirements took effect on April 1st and apply to the master file and country-by-country -country report. The new guidance requires only one master file to be submitted by the designated entity on behalf of all constituent entities, and the designation form must identify the resident and non-resident constituent entities. As for the country-by-country -country report, the consolidated group revenue threshold for the financial year has been increased from 55 billion to 64 billion rupees, or 860 million U.S. dollars. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Welcome back, everyone. We're here to discuss EU and state aid and the controversial cases that have arisen for household name companies in the last few years. We're joined by Chief Economist here at Cross-Border Solutions, Mimi Song, and David Chamberlain, Assistant Professor of Accounting and Tax at Orphalia College of Business at California Polytechnic State University. I'm actually going to hand the reins over to Mimi for this conversation. Mimi, you have the floor. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on the Fiona Show. We're really excited to have you. Just a couple of get-to-know-you questions before we dig into the meat of the discussion today. How did you get into transfer pricing? Yeah, well, I am a lawyer by training. I actually did linguistics undergraduate, and naturally, since you can't do anything with linguistics, at least 30 years ago you couldn't, I went to law school and quickly determined that corporate law was what interested me, various types of corporate law. Mm -hmm. I did internships at summer associate stints at some law firms. And I found that tax was more creative and more interesting than other areas of corporate law. You really, you know, you got into the, the details and really helping clients achieve their goals mm -hmm. in tax a lot more than other areas. I always had an interest in international I had studied Chinese. I wish I spoke it better, but I had studied Chinese at Berkeley. Wow. Um, so I was definitely interested in international, took some international tax, got recruited by Coopers and Librand back then in San Francisco for an international tax partner. What happened was I was doing international tax, did some work with a high net worth individual and looking at some passive foreign investment companies, mm -hmm. PFIX, did some, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. 
But when I touched upon transfer pricing, that's what really interested me. It was, it is the starting point. Before, you know, when I was doing other types of international tax, I was saying, oh, well, this is all great. And, uh, you know, we can run these numbers and see what comes out. But how do we know that the the starting point is correct? How do we know that the income that we're looking at is the real income? And transfer pricing is where that answer comes. That's phenomenal. And your career in transfer pricing, you know, and with your background in, in learning Chinese, I think it ended up taking you to China, right? It did eventually for the last five years before I joined Cal Poly. I've been, I've been, it's been almost 30 years in tax and transfer pricing. And then I've been four years here at Cal Poly, but five years before that in China. The great thing about transfer pricing is that it is universal, right? Mm -hmm. The arm's length standard applies or the arm's length principle applies everywhere in the world, at least in theory. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I was able to translate that, come to China, you know, bring bring a US perspective, but do very much similar work. It worked out quite well. That's amazing. Do you feel like there are actually certain nuances with respect to transfer pricing in China versus transfer pricing in the US? I I, I know the main Thing that people mostly focus on would be the concept of location savings, right? Exactly. Or, or even more specifically, something they call market premium. Mm-hmm. You know, as it happens, luxury goods sell at twice the price in China that they would in the U.S. You know, the exact same luxury good sells at twice the price, handbags, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. And so China would argue, well, the market is what's valuable, and we think that the Chinese company should be earning a good chunk of that market premium. Well, of course, the U.S. says, no, it's all the intangibles that we developed in the U.S. that matter. But, you know, what intangibles are there in handbags? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> other than, but, but brand name. The gift they of devo- joy, devo- David. <laughs> right, right. And they developed a global brand name. And, yep. and it's that, that global cachet that is why the Chinese customers want to want to buy those handbags. There are arguments on both sides, and it's an interesting aspect of it. That's amazing. I did not know that the luxury goods were twice the price, locally speaking. And, and so that actually makes a lot of sense to me why sometimes some of these premium outlet stores, I would see people, tourists, with suitcases. And I always wondered, why do they have a suitcase and they're filling them up with premium luxury goods that they acquired in the U.S.? Right, um, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. They, the Chinese, uh, <laughs> uh, they're, you know, there are a lot of wealthy Chinese. China is booming. It's fantastic business. I think they have the most millionaires. You is know. that right? I okay. believe so, I'm not, yes. I'm not surprised to hear mm-hmm. it. It's yeah. quite possible. So they can afford to pay it in China, but if they're going to be in Europe or in the U.S., you know, so much the better. That's right. Interesting. And as a professor of accounting and tax, which is what you focus on today, right? What do you think is important for every student to know about transfer pricing? A couple of things. One thing that I really liked about transfer pricing, part of what brought me into it, was the mix of law, right? And have the legal background. So there Mm -hmm. are technical rules interplay between different tax law aspects, but it's the interlocking mix of the tax law Dealing with accounting data, you know, that's where we start. Transfer pricing looks for comparables. So for comparables, we don't have tax numbers. We have accounting numbers. Mm -hmm. And accounting numbers are closer to economic reality 
then tax numbers would be as well. You know, tax has accelerated depreciation because Congress is trying to encourage investment while accounting is trying to match expenses and income. So it's a mix of tax law, accounting, and furthermore, economic. Mm-hmm. So it's not just moving boxes. That's what, you know, that's what some of the international tax people call what they do, mergers <laughs> and you know, moving boxes around the corporate structure, right? The, the corporate box is square and the partnership mm-hmm. is triangular and all this. But transfer pricing is actually looking at you know, how do things work in the real world, what would people do or what would companies do if they were dealing independently? You know, a hypothetical question that you can't answer just by looking at the tax law. You need to think about the economic reasoning. Right, right. Well, with that being said, let's get into our discussion for today, which is specifically focused on the European Union and state aid-related cases, right? So right. let's start from the beginning. And What is the EU Commission And what authority does it actually have in terms of transfer pricing? Right, right. Great question. The EU Commission is the executive branch of the EU, like the president and the treasury and the IRS in the U.S. The commission in the state aid cases acts very much like the IRS. They look at the taxpayers, Mm -hmm. uh, for want of a better word, and decides whether they think they are acting at arm's length. But the interesting thing is that it's not tax. The European Union has no jurisdiction over the tax rules of the various countries, but they do have jurisdiction over trade, Mm -hmm. right? And the competition arm of the commission is what gets involved in the state aid cases. So in addition to state aid, they're responsible for antitrust. Right. Right. So what is state aid? State aid, the quintessential state aid case would be where a country subsidizes a local champion. Let's say there's an automaker in France and France wants their automaker to be the the most successful in the world. Mm -hmm. So they give it a subsidy. They say, here's some money. You're going to reduce your costs. You're going to be able to make more profit and do better stuff. And there you go. And the commission says that's unfair. That's unfair competition. The French company should be on an equal footing with the German or the Spanish or whatever company. And so they they crack down on that. And interrupting very briefly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is authority. Again, our first CPE code word for this episode is authority. And back to our conversation. State aid can be in the form of tax breaks instead of a cash subsidy. So that's where tax comes in. If a country gives a a company a tax break, that is economically exactly the same thing as if they gave them a cash subsidy. And so if the country allows transfer pricing rules to reduce the income of a local taxpayer, well, that's state aid potentially. Got it. And these tax breaks clearly have an impact to the benefits that a company would have and potentially the transfer prices they may be paying or the transfer pricing framework between the two competing countries and jurisdictions, right? And so there's got to be an interesting dynamic here between the tax administrations on a local basis, right? Germany's tax authorities, Spain's tax authorities, 
versus the EU Commission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, certainly. That's typically what the state aid cases are about. The cases aren't, you know, technically, they're not brought against the companies. Mm -hmm. They are brought against the countries. They're saying that Ireland, when you gave Apple state aid, that was wrong. So you, Ireland, are at fault. And we're going to make you collect more money from Apple. Uh, (laughs) Ironically, ironically, the bad actor is the one that's going to come out ahead in a state aid case. But meanwhile, Ireland wants to defend its original transfer pricing that they allowed through a ruling. They want to do that because they're trying to encourage investment. Arguably, right? Arguably, Arguably, right. right. If they're giving a benefit, Arguably, the reason they'll give that benefit is to encourage investment. Right. Well, so you talked about Apple. So let's get into those details, right? The Apple case has been decided, overturned, and appealed. Tell us a little bit about that case, right? What, what's really happening there? It actually helps to go back to the double Irish structure first. Okay. Yep. Apple is not a double Irish structure. So people sometimes think it is, but it's actually not. It's actually a somewhat different structure. But similar issues are involved. A double Irish would involve an Irish incorporated company that is not resident in Ireland under Irish management and control test for mm-hmm. what for residency. So under U.S. law, the fact that it's U.S. incorporated would mean that it's taxable in the U.S. But under Irish law, before at least, even though it's Irish incorporated, if it's a non-resident parent, or if it's managed and controlled outside of Ireland, it could be considered non-resident and not taxed. This is the top level. This is the, the top of the double Irish. And that company will be the company that owns the intangibles. Mm-hmm. Most often, the, if we're talking about the U.S., this is going to be a cost-sharing arrangement. Sure. Right? So this top company has, has bought the IP, bought the rest of world rights to the IP. They continue to make cost-sharing payments and so on. Then the second part of Double Irish is their subsidiary, which is a taxable entity. So it's also an Irish incorporated company, but this one is resident. And this one is doing some level of business in Ireland. It's varied over time how much substance it would have in Ireland, but Mm -hmm. it could be a fair amount, could be significant manufacturing in Ireland. In the early years of Apple, Apple did do significant manufacturing in Ireland, although by the time we get to the state aid case, that all had moved to China. Mm -hmm. And Ireland was theoretically managing the contracts with China and all. And and so they were still arguing that it controlled the intangibles and and, and whatnot. The parent, again, the non-resident parent did. So it's actually, it would actually be the combination. It would be the Irish incorporated company is doing the day-to-day management of the business. Yeah. But Ireland and Apple would argue that what it's doing is routine. Yes. Right. And they would use CPM, comparable profits method, or of course, under international standards, it's called the transactional net margin method, TNMM. So they would use that and they would say that this bottom level Irish company, the resident one, deserved just a routine margin. And all of these huge profits that Apple earns because its, its intangibles are so valuable goes back 
to the parent company, this, this non-resident parent company that's taxable nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it would be in the form of a royalty. And so you've stripped a lot of profit from one to the other. So the parent owns this intangibles, but they have no people, no functions or, or tangible assets. Sure. But again, we're actually not talking about Apple here. We're actually talking about the double, the double Irish. Irish structure. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The parent company would, this non-resident would actually, you know, own the intangibles through the cost sharing arrangement, but they would have no people or functions. Arguably, under the old transfer pricing guidelines, the OECD transfer pricing guidelines, as well as U.S. practice, arguably just bearing the cost of development and owning the intangibles on paper was sufficient to earn the profits. State aid and BEPS, of course, the base erosion and profit shifting project globally, put a lot of pressure on Ireland and said, this isn't right. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be able to move profits to a company that doesn't contribute any value, you know, no value creation. Right. So Ireland eventually cracked down on the double Irish and made it so it doesn't work anymore. So if it's not resident anywhere and it's Irish incorporated, it will be treated as an Irish resident and taxable. So you want to hear about the Apple case. So. That's right. So now, <laughs> so, let's, now how does that come full circle back to the Apple case now, right? Because right. you were saying we weren't talking about Apple. Apple wasn't this explicit Irish structure. So what was the problem or the challenge with Apple? Right. In Apple, it's similar that you have an Irish non-resident company. But in its case, rather than a subsidiary, it has a branch in Ireland. And that branch, also known as a permanent establishment, mm-hmm. under you know, kind of international terminology, this branch was taxable in Ireland, but the parent company, the, the headquarters company, let's say the headquarters of the company, was not taxable. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't license to yourself, right? You can't enter into a transaction with yourself. So transfer pricing technically doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. Right. You have a headquarters and a branch that are one entity yeah. and so doesn't apply. So it's a question of the allocation of profit to the branch versus the headquarters. That, that's the issue. And similarly to the double Irish, Ireland was saying they treat the branch as the tested party, let's say, mm-hmm. and they give that branch a routine return, and they allocate the rest of the profits to the headquarters. So Mm -hmm. as it happens, for transfer pricing, there is a global consensus, right? The arm's length standard applies, and you have the OEC guidelines. But for branch profit allocations, there is no global consensus. And Ireland then argues that it's the method it uses is what its internal law would would say. So the commission argued that all the profit belonged to the branch. They say the head office has no functions, shouldn't be allocated profit. And they said you owe 13 billion euros to Ireland in tax and back taxes over 10 years. Because none of that was essentially taxed as right. the headquarters was in a, a non-tax resident, right? Right. Right. The headquarters was, was taxable nowhere. Mm-hmm. 
Which sounds strange, but that was legal, David. It it absolutely <laughs> was legal. Yeah. And that is what BEPS was all about, mm-hmm. right? It was the global community looked at the world international tax system and said, okay, you know, 50 years ago, we created this network of tax treaties and the tax treaties were all focused on double taxation, right? They were saying, how do we eliminate double taxation? So right. the two countries involved, you know, have to agree on how profits should be allocated between them. Which is somewhat of a multinational taxpayer favorable position, right? Because to say, hey, this multinational shouldn't be subject to double taxation or paying taxes twice on the same profits, right? And interrupting one more time for our second CPE code word, and that code word is position. Again, our second CPE code word for this episode is position. And back to our conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the countries all said, yeah, we don't want to have 100% taxation Mm -hmm. and make it so companies aren't going to operate at all. That's not going to help us in the long run either. We want to encourage international trade and whatnot. So double taxation, eliminating double taxation was the focus. But now 50 years later or 100 years later, the global community came together and said, but somehow these corporations have managed to create these entities that are taxable nowhere. And the terminology was developed that was double non-taxation. Yes. Mm -hmm. So one way that this was done was by hybrid entities that were treated as a partnership from the Netherlands perspective, but as a corporation from the U.S. perspective, the Netherlands would say, because it's a partnership with a foreign partner, we assume the foreign countries tax taxing it. The U.S. will say, well, it's a corporation. We're not going to tax it as long as you avoid the subpart F, controlled foreign corporation rules, whatnot. So you'd end up with these entities, hybrid entities that were taxable nowhere. And so in the BEPS project, one of the action items was eliminating this issue of a hybrid entity Mm -hmm. and making it so if the payment from the one country is not taxable in the other country, the first country shouldn't give a deduction for it. So these structures, and again, the cracking down of the double Irish wasn't specifically part of BEPS, but it was you know, part of this general global feeling about what's fair and what's not. Right, right. That a company as profitable as Apple was now paying tax to no jurisdiction. Right. 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 (laughs) So the interesting thing about this branch PE, so if we go back to some of the other cases, Mm -hmm. we look at the Starbucks case or the Fiat case. Yep. In those cases, the courts, the general court said the arm's length principle applies. And what's interesting is they don't say it applies because of tax rules. Right? They don't say that the country has the arm's length standard as part of their internal law, and therefore, you know, if the transfer pricing is wrong, you have a problem. Instead, they say there is what could be called an autonomous arm's length standard, one that arises by virtue of European community pro-competition law. The idea being that when you have multinationals, competing against companies that are only in one country, the only way to make that fair 
would be to say that because on the one hand, the standalone companies automatically follow the arm's length standard, right? They're, they're standalone. So any transactions they have are actually with independent parties, right? And that's the definition of the arm's length standard. Related party transactions should be on the same basis as they would have been if they were unrelated. Unrelated, mm -hmm. Right, so the commission argued and won in Starbucks and Fiat on the argument that the arm's length standard applies under competition law in order to put them on an equal footing. It's funny, you, you, you call it sort of an autonomous arm's length standard. It reminds me of the concept of the invisible hand by Adam Smith, right? Sort of that. Mm, okay. Yeah, it, it reminded <laughs> me of that. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. So the concept clearly being that there's, you know, certain levels of competition, hopefully, right? We'll move things to an equal footing, if you will. So, but right. this is a really interesting position for Ireland, right? I mean, this is a concept that they have allowed for legally. So what was the benefit to Ireland? As kind of mentioned before, it's about investment, mm -hmm. right? The Ireland's a small country. It does have a great workforce. It does have good infrastructure, but it's still a small country and may not have as much to offer in terms of companies setting up headquarters than some larger countries would be absent tax competition, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's similar to the U.S. states, right? Amazon's going to set up a new headquarters. I don't remember which states were, were competing with tax breaks, but various states are saying, if you locate here, we won't subject you to property taxes for 10 years. Or, right. I think uh, Michigan was in that mix. I remember Ann Arbor. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> or, okay. Yeah. Or that was for Google, actually. Sorry. Okay. But. Yeah, I mean, it, you name it, lots of companies have had this, uh, have this issue on a U.S. state basis. It's the same thing internationally. And Ireland was extremely successful at doing this. And, and it brought real economic activity. You know, as I said, back in the day, 20, 30, how many years ago? 30 years ago, Apple Ireland did a lot of significant manufacturing and brought a lot of real jobs to Ireland. Mm-hmm. That's why they were willing to give up a lot of taxes that they otherwise would be able to collect. Does that mean, right, or can we interpret that as ultimately investment is more valuable to a country like Ireland than the actual tax dollars? Yes and no. Yes, investment is what they're trying to attract through the tax breaks. But on the other hand, if they didn't give these tax breaks and attract the companies to actually set up their headquarters there, well they're not going to get the taxes anyway, right? <laughs> because <laughs> the Netherlands has the headquarters anyway, <laughs> otherwise, and Netherlands is going to get the tax. So it's all, it's all wrapped up in one. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And interrupting one last time for our third and final CPE code word, and that code word is decision. Again, our third and final CPE code word is decision. And back to our conversation. So what did the general court decide with respect specifically to this Apple case, right? Right, right, right. So in Starbucks and Fiat, the court said there was this autonomous arm's length standard because companies that are part of a multinational group has to compete on the same basis as independent companies that that are standalone companies. Mm -hmm. And that means they both should have arm's length prices. Apple, as I mentioned, was a branch instead Mm -hmm. of a corporation. So under domestic law, transfer pricing rules do not apply. And there's a lot of uncertainty as to what you do use to determine profits of a branch. The OECD in 2010 said that the best approach would be a arm's length approach. You would hypothesize that the branch and the PE were unrelated parties and the allocation of profits between them should be consistent with what would have resulted if there had been transactions between the branch and the headquarters. So this is one method. Now, in theory, mm-hmm. right, the same autonomous arm's length principle theory should apply to a branch, right? right? It, there, right. It, if there's an autonomous arm's length standard, it shouldn't matter what the domestic law is because this branch or this corporation that's a headquarters plus a branch shouldn't get a tax break that a wholly standalone company completely in Ireland would get. Right Now, the court was kind of ambiguous. They were not 100% clear on whether they were creating an autonomous arm's length standard for the allocation of branch profits. And in fact, they relied on this Irish case called Data Products, which was a pretty obscure case. Very, uh, mm-hmm. you know, no one had heard of it before. And in that case, the Irish high court had said, that Ireland could not tax interest on a bank account that was held by an Irish incorporated but Dutch-managed company, right? So a non-resident Irish incorporated company. And so they said managing of the IP is similar to managing the bank account in this case, and they relied on Irish law. So they, they basically, you know, they weren't relying on an autonomous standard they were actually looking at Irish law. Now, having said that, arguably the arm's length standard was being applied because what they did is they looked at the activities of the branch. They applied CPM slash TNMM to that branch and said the branch should be allocated profits on its activities, which were pretty routine activities. Mm -hmm. And, And then, so they argued, we look, you know, unilaterally, we look at that one entity and we allocate the proper profit to them, and the rest goes back to the headquarters. But the headquarters, the reason I criticized the case and the position that the commission took, but ultimately lost in the general court, Mm -hmm. 
was that the headquarters, the factual background is the headquarters has no employees right. and no operations. And so the intangible property that belongs to this Irish company, everyone agrees that the cost-sharing arrangement was valid and the Irish company as a whole owns the IP as long as they keep making those cost-sharing payments to the U.S. Mm -hmm. and so on. So the profits overall were correct, at least, uh, you know, as a starting point, that's what the commission said. But the commission says, when we hypothesize these two companies that you have to do in a branch profits case, mm -hmm. we have to hypothesize that the intangible property is also in the branch. It's not in the headquarters because you know, headquarters has no operations and no people. So to the extent anyone is managing the IP under BEPS standards or mm -hmm. transfer pricing standards in general, it had to be the branch that was doing it. Right. And therefore the commission said all of the profit should go to the branch. But the court said, no, we think that the headquarters, even though it has no people in it, is managing the IP. And the argument is that the directors of the corporation, who are mostly not Irish, there is actually one Irish person, but only one is Irish. Mm -hmm. And they say these directors, through their board meetings, are the ones that are managing the IP. And they also argue that the IP is really being managed in the U.S., and that's very true to a large extent. These other board members are U.S. You know, the, the R&D is taking place in the U.S. And right. Ireland's only funding it through cost sharing. So there's something to that. That's the argument of, okay, where are all the DEMPI functions being performed with respect to the intangibles, right? Development, enhancement, exploitation, you know, maintenance, protection. So, right. so that's... That's the substance behind all of this, right? Right. And the court's saying most of that's in the U.S., yep. so therefore the taxable Irish branch shouldn't have this profit. It's so interesting because, you know, taxation related to branches, it is under a sort of separate regimen, if you will, right? So the, mm -hmm. the allocation of profits to branches, even the OECD has a whole different section attributed to this, you know, their authorized mm -hmm. OECD approach, the U.S. has section the 861. Yeah. yeah, the AOA, right? right. So right. was that not brought into context? In well, so as I was saying, that was brought up, okay. right? So again, in Starbucks and Fiat, mm -hmm. the court said the Armstrong standard applies and there's an autonomous standard. So the OECD guidelines do not directly apply. But we think that they are expert opinions on what the arm's length standard means. And so we'll, we'll give a lot of uh, weight to them. Yeah. Right. When they came to the Apple case, they looked at the authorized OECD approach in this, yep. this 2010 document of the, of the OECD and said, well, yeah, this looks pretty, this looks like expert opinion too. Yeah, we're going to give it some weight, but then they don't really, how do you put it? The opinion doesn't really tie together. Mm -hmm. And it's not entirely clear what they're applying because they rely on this obscure Irish case data products, which had nothing to do with the AOA. Right. Well, right. then maybe it's not really surprising that the EU commission announced a decision to appeal the general court's decision, right? 
Oh yeah, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not surprised in the least. Okay. You know, there are 13 billion euros at stake. Yep. The EU Commission has invested, I don't know how many dollars they've invested in pursuing this case. The general court is not the highest court. Mm-hmm. There's one court above them, the, the equivalent of the Supreme Court in the EU. So I, I, I think it's just obvious they're going to appeal. <laughs> it's similar to the U.S., though, where the facts are determined by the lower court and the, the top court, court of justice, is only supposed to look at the law. So the EU commission is arguing the law. They're saying, yes, the OECD, authorized OECD approach should be the law, basically, and that under that approach, you should allocate the IP to the branch, which itself is controversial, right? This whole argument about the directors being the headquarters and the IP then should be allocated to them, that you can definitely make the argument under the AOA that that that's the appropriate way to look at it. I don't agree with it. I I agree with the commission that you can't say, you can't say the U.S. is doing the stuff because the U.S. is not part of the Irish company. They operate under contract with the Irish company. And so if we take as a given that the Irish company deserves these high profits because they own the IP, mm-hmm. then what's the U.S. got to do with it? The, U- right. you know, the U.S. is getting their fair share through cost sharing and the original buy-in and, and so on. Right. And so I would say, no, the only functions that are relevant and this is what the commission's argument is, the only functions are relevant are those of the Irish company, not its directors. Directors are, you know, they're having board meetings. They're, they're not doing real stuff. And everything that's going on, whether it's routine or not, I mean, it's everything. So all the profits should go to the branch. That's a matter of law. So the, the European Court of Justice clearly could find in favor of the commission. You know, David, since your background is a legal background, I mean, the OECD and their AOA approach, is that really a legally binding approach or is that on a jurisdictional basis, right? They would have to adopt that explicitly into their tax law, right? Absolutely. It's clearly not the uh, international law for branch allocation. The arm's length standard in the case of corporations in different countries, that is a global standard. It is again, that is also a matter of domestic law for each country, but every country in the world, except maybe Brazil has adopted the arm's length standard. Well, so. Brazil might argue against that, by the way, you know. <laughs> true, true. <But laughs> That's we're not for another talk podcast. About, yeah, That's right. <laughs> exactly. um, but the authorized OECD approach, the branch profits allocation issue, mm-hmm. is not globally agreed to. An interesting side note, the other main way to do branch profit allocations mm-hmm. is an allocation and apportionment approach. Right? That's, yep. that's what U.S. domestic law does. It does an allocation and apportionment. And if you follow that approach, the commission wins again <laughs> yeah. because the headquarters has no functions, no assets. You know, they're not going to get allocated or apportioned to anything. It should right. all go to the branch. If it's formulaic based on the number of people or the actual location and things of that nature, right? Right. But to go back to your does domestic law matter, mm-hmm. right? Yes. If we go back to the Starbucks and Fiat cases, the court yes. said, No, domestic law does not matter. It's a matter of EU competition law that you have this autonomous arm's length standard. 
And my argument is that applies with just as much force to a branch as it does to a corporation. And therefore, if there is such a thing, and, and now the European Court of Justice hasn't spoken on this, right? It's only the general court that has said there is an autonomous standard. Mm -hmm. But if the ECJ agrees that there is an autonomous standard for corporations, I believe they should agree or they should decide that there is also an autonomous standard when it comes to branch profit allocations. And that would mean the authorized OECD approach is the best expert opinion on how to do that. Right. Well, you know, we, we've been touching upon Starbucks a little bit. So let's give a little bit of context to that, right? What happened sure. in the Netherlands with Starbucks? And now we introduce not only Ireland, but the Netherlands comes into play here with the Starbucks case, right? Right, right. I've been saying that the commission won in Starbucks. I've kind of been implying that, but that's mm -hmm. actually not true. Okay. <laughs> the commission actually lost yep. Starbucks. So they won on this issue of whether there is an autonomous arm's length standard. Mm -hmm. And they won fiat completely. Fiat's a simple case. Fiat was a case of a treasury company in Luxembourg, and they had gotten a ruling that said the treasury company should get a return on capital. And the commission actually agreed. The commission said, yeah, they should get a return on capital. But we think that the ruling that fiat got was not arm's length and the return on capital was too low. They kept certain costs out of the base for the return and therefore, you know, it wasn't right. And they won on that. The, the general court said, yeah, we think the Luxembourg got it wrong. Yeah. It accidentally or on purpose, whatever it's wrong. <laughs> and they found for the commission. Starbucks, these two cases came out at the same time and they both adopted the autonomous arm's length standard. But in Starbucks, I totally agree with the general court's decision on this one. I, okay. I'm, I may sound like I'm pro-commission in general, but, <laughs> but not when it comes to Starbucks. Starbucks, the commission's argument was crazy. The commission argued, again, you had a hybrid structure in this case that I, I won't go into great detail on. It was the hybrid entity was in the UK, but it was incorporated in the UK, but it was taxed nowhere and it owned the intangibles. Mm -hmm. Intangibles relevant here were the roasting IP, the roasting intangibles saying, you know, how do you mix this and that and get the perfect Starbucks? The perfect roast. blend. Right. By the way, true story, Starbucks, it's explicitly roasted a certain way so that it's consistent coffee everywhere around the world. But Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so that that's... That's their IP. That's the IP. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, the, and this UK company owned the rest of the world rights, or at least the European rights. I don't recall exactly how far it extended. And they owned it through cost sharing. So they had paid a, a reasonably large buy-in and also continued to pay cost sharing. But again, it was an entity with no people, mm -hmm. but it was making these payments. And it was receiving a royalty from the Netherlands company that was doing the actual roasting. Mm -hmm. And that company was then selling the roasted coffee to independent Starbucks stores, franchisees, right? So it was paying this royalty back. The royalty under the, under the ruling from the Netherlands was again, determined using a comparable profits transactional net margin method that gave the Netherlands, the taxable Netherlands roasting company, a routine return. 
Okay, the commission, this is like the first case they said, and they, they like so many courts, were enamored with the concept of the comparable and controlled price method, the mm-hmm. cut method, mm-hmm. or cut, cut method for intangibles in the U.S., comparable and controlled transaction. And they said, oh, yeah, we think that's a better method than CPM. You'll notice that they you know, abandoned that in fiat and Apple and went to a CPM approach in those. But in Starbucks, they said, we think it's a cup, a cut or a cup, however you want to put it. Mm-hmm. And the, what we're going to compare are these roasters that sell the coffee they roast back to Starbucks itself. Mm. So it, totally non-comparable. Right. And the commission said it should be a zero royalty because they don't pay royalties. Well, of course they don't because they're selling back to Starbucks. So Starbucks controls the price they pay and that price does not include the return to the intangibles. Yes. Right. Well, meanwhile, this Netherlands company sells to third parties. So it does include the intangible component of the profit and it's perfectly appropriate to pay back a royalty. Right. So the commission might've won if they had nitpicked, you know, as in fiat, they had said, okay, this method is all right. The CPM TNMM method is correct, but we're going to nitpick it. They, they could have won on that perhaps, but they're, and they tried to, but it was a secondary argument and, and they did a half job with that. So they lost because they had this ridiculous cup. The other thing crazy about the cup was it's a zero royalty, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this UK company that has these large expenses for cost sharing and buy-in gets no income. So they have expenses and no income whatsoever, not right. even enough to cover, you know, on a, a, at a no profit basis, those costs. So, yeah. so I'm not surprised that they lost and I'm not surprised they didn't appeal that one. <laughs> yeah. But, but it was a little bit controversial in some cases, right? I mean, this whole sure. situation between the commission's authority versus the Netherlands authority, if you will, the local authority, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that comes back to the autonomous arms length standard. The European community has no domain over tax. Mm -hmm. If they're going to do anything on a tax basis, the rules are that the EU has to get approval by every single country in the EU. It has to be unanimous before they can do any kind of directive relating to tax. And so Netherlands is arguing we are responsible for enforcing the arm's length standard under our domestic law. They do use the arm's length standard, but they say, you know, we are responsible for our own tax. And therefore, the way we interpret it is binding. And, you know, the commission should stay out of our business. But the commission said no. There is an autonomous arm's length standard, so we don't care what you did. We don't care what your local transfer pricing law says. We can determine what's right and what's wrong. That was definitely controversial as to whether such a thing existed. Absolutely. So, David, you know, what do these cases tell us in terms of transfer pricing? Well, they tell us that details matter. They tell us mm-hmm. that transfer pricing is important for both tax law and the commission's pro-competition law. Mm -hmm. I think another interesting thing they teach is at the end of the day, CPM, transactional net margin method, 
is really the global standard. Yeah. Anyone who's practiced in transfer pricing knows that if you want to get things done, you use CPM. Yes. It's, the only, it's the only thing that really works. You can argue forever about comparable prices and gross margins and whatnot. But at the end of the day, CPM is what matters. And these cases, you know, make that clear. Fiat and Apple are both based on CPM. You know, I disagree with the way they applied CPM. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they actually did. And Starbucks, they lost because they didn't apply CPM. Right, so, right. So that's the main thing I would take away, that that is TNMM CPM is the de facto world standard for transfer pricing. Yep. You know, we got to think about the practical application of this autonomous arms link standard, I feel like. So you don't want to trigger any unnecessary EU commission's attention, if you will, right? <laughs> right, right. At, at the end of the day, the autonomous standard, you know, the, cor- the courts say we will look at the OECD guidelines. So early on, there people were arguing, oh, this is terrible. There can't be an autonomous standard. We can't have two different arm's length standards floating around. End of the day, they are the same standard. They're the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're about to close today's show. We want to thank David for joining us on today's show. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out this podcast along with Cross-Border Solutions suite of tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. My name is Matthew DeMello, and they let me host and master this podcast. This podcast was edited by Andrew O'Donnell. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. As we say every week, this is the home stretch. Wear a mask, stay safe, and we will see each other very soon. Until next week, we'll catch you then.